KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, we'll speak with John Nichols about the Republicans. Mitch McConnell seems to think Trump is undermining Republican chances of taking control of the Senate next November because the candidates he's endorsing in the Republican primaries are not going to win support outside Trump's base. We'll talk in particular about Georgia, where Stacey Abrams is running for governor and the Reverend Raphael Warnock is running for re-election to the Senate. And we'll also talk with John Nichols about the role of virus politics on the national scene, where anti-vaxxers are likely to win Republican primaries in many places, and then anti-vaxxers are likely to lose to Democrats in the general election because vaccines have wide support in America. That's later in the hour. But first, Harold Meyerson with today's political update. Harold, of course, is editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Let's start with Ukraine. Maybe Putin will not invade. He'd have to be pretty crazy to risk the kind of retaliation and financial sanctions on the oligarchs that the United States uh, has talked about. But progressives have been critical of American policy uh, in Eastern Europe for a long time because of NATO encirclement of Russia following the collapse of the Soviet Union, something you and I have talked about here more than once. But what are progressives saying now about Putin and Biden? What is Bernie Sanders saying? What is DSA saying, the largest socialist organization in the history of America? Well, Bernie gave a speech uh, last Thursday, a week ago, uh, uh, on the floor of the Senate that I thought was really exemplary. Uh, He you know, pointed out that an invasion would be a serious breach of all kinds of things and should be met by sanctions. But he also uh, really distanced uh, himself with an analysis and critique uh, of, uh, of Biden policy that I thought was, was right on. Uh, like many, including many realpolitik centrists who opposed this back in the 1990s, He uh, said the expansion of NATO to Eastern Europe uh, was uh, ill-advised. He uh, said uh, from the Russian security standpoint, even if Putin or or a similar neo-autocrat were not governing Russia, Russia would be concerned about Ukraine uh, being part of NATO, just as the United States, Bernie said, would be concerned if Mexico uh, had an alliance with uh, with Russia or China or whatever. I mean, he uh, he made that pretty clear. He also pointed out that uh, part of the settlement at the end of World War II saw the creation over some years of Finland, Sweden, and Austria as neutral countries, which did not join NATO, nor did they join the Warsaw Pact. And he pointed out that all three countries are democracies today. He didn't point out, but I added in the little thing I wrote about this, that there are a couple of the Eastern European nations that are members of NATO, notably Hungary and Poland, which are not notable democracies. (laughs) Excellent point. Um, You know, uh, Orban uh, clearly thinks the world of of Putin. And, And by the way, just FYI, um, the Brasilia, Brazil's right-wing autocrat, uh, uh, President Bolsonaro, 
has been visiting Moscow and his next stop is, uh, is Ukraine. So there's kind of a, uh, uh, you know, if, if we still think, if there's any illusions on the left that Russia is somehow in any way, shape or form a left-wing power, uh, a, a, a growing alliance with Bolsonaro should be, you know, the, the, about number 199 uh, of the reasons why Russia is not uh, a left-wing power. So uh, anyway, but Bernie pointed out that there are alternative models of what would be desirable uh, in, uh, in Ukraine and in Eastern Europe, that uh, a, a nation that is not a member of NATO can be uh, still a democracy. A nation that is a member of NATO, I added, is no guarantee it will be a democracy. And then the, the whole larger question of what strategic purpose NATO has after the Soviet Union ceased to exist still hangs over this as a kind of a, a, a troublesome ghost. And, and what about DSA? Well, the DSA International Committee has taken some peculiar positions, uh, one of which I've written about. Uh, they uh, were aligned with some of what Bernie said, but in a 600-word statement that they released, uh, they mentioned Russia twice in passing as having been a signatory to the Minsk II agreement, whatever, but only once did Russia figure in, in their assessment of what was going on and what uh, what should be done, saying that, uh, you know, we, we, we shouldn't uh, impose sanctions on Russia, period. There was no, no recognition in the statement that uh, Russia had actually put troops on the borders of Ukraine and that the current crisis was basically a reaction to that. Somehow this bit of information was omitted uh, from the DSA statement, which I thought was uh, kind of a glaring uh, knee-jerk lack. Uh, I, I, I think, uh, in part, uh, even as people on the left hurry to point out that America is responsible for much of what's wrong with the world, it is not the sole agent that has made the world troublesome. Uh, that there are actually other troublesome actors, uh, that uh, an increasingly autocratic Russia is one of them. Uh, and to have any credibility with sentient human beings, you kind of need to acknowledge that. I've been looking to see any evidence of a party, uh, of a difference between the Democrats and the Republicans on Ukraine. It's hard to find much. I mean, the Republicans sort of say, well, there should be more military aid to Ukraine, or uh, sanctions should be imposed sooner. But this is not this is not much of a difference, as far as I can tell. Uh, Josh Hawley, the, probably the mo you know the the most Trumpish of of all Republican senators, is the only senator who says that Russia is right and, and that we should agree that Ukraine should not join NATO, which is kind of what we think, I believe. Why should well, Ukraine... Here's, here's, here's what's going on, that the differences within the two parties uh, exceed the differences uh, between the at least the establishments of the two parties, uh, because there is a part of uh, Trump world that has long admired Russia for its uh, policies that are bigoted, 
uh, anti-gay, anti-lesbian, uh, you know, anti-civil rights, uh, uh, and uh, pro-autocratic. Uh, and you see this even more than in Josh Hawley. You see it on, uh, on Fox News, and you see it with Tucker Carlson. And a lot of this goes back, I remember, uh, really the first uh, manifestation of this was uh, when Pat Buchanan, who was kind of a, a, a Trumpoid before, before Trump, and, and actually, unlike Trump, has a, a, you know, a pretty sharp brain, uh, started writing that we needed to reevaluate our Cold War antipathy to Russia, that American traditionalists and conservatives would find they had more in common with the uh, affirmation of white Christian doctrine uh, uh, that we saw out of Putin, then, uh, you know, uh, uh, and, and that this, th this kind of thinking is now uh, clearly uh, permeated part of the Trump wing of the Republican Party. Yeah. Well, let's sh shift our focus to American uh, politics now. <clears throat> In the coming midterms, everybody knows the Republicans in general uh, have the advantage because in general, the party in the White House tends to lose control of Congress in this first midterm election uh, because this president's approval ratings are hovering in the low to mid 40s because inflation is the highest it's been in decades uh, because the pandemic isn't over yet all that suggests the republicans should have a pretty easy time of winning not just the house but also the senate but mitch mcconnell doesn't seem to be so confident of that um he seems to be worried that trump's candidates are going to screw things up and that the Democrats will hold on to the Senate. The New York Times reports that McConnell and his allies are quietly, desperately maneuvering to recruit their own candidates who will challenge Trump's candidates uh, in, in the primaries. And that they've been, there's a series of behind the scenes phone calls, meetings, polling memos, and promises of millions of dollars to Senate candidates who will not uh, support uh, Trump. The, one of the most interesting cases I would love to talk about for a minute is is um, is Arizona, uh, which Joe Biden carried narrowly in 2020, and where Democratic Senator Mark Kelly is running for re-election. Um, a lot of people think Republicans should be able to recapture this seat given the present situation, but there isn't a really good Republican candidate right now. Um, Trump was at a rally there recently, and he spoke warmly about guy I just have to mention here, Blake Masters. This is a person who's never been in politics before, who's the candidate of Peter Thiel, the billionaire tech mogul of the far right. Peter Thiel has given him $10 million. He's a former COO of, of Peter Thiel's investment group. Um, uh, uh, Masters has said he believes Trump won the 2020 election and that the country is being run by today by, quote, psychopaths. Uh, is that the kind of Republican candidate who can defeat Mark Kelly in Arizona? Well, this is exactly what Mitch McConnell is afraid of. And just to put this in some context, in a couple election cycles ago, uh, the Republicans thought they could pick up a Senate seat in Delaware, but the Republican nominee was a woman who had been practicing witchcraft uh, uh, <laughs> relatively recently, and uh, suffice it to say the Democrat won that election. 
Um, and, you know, McConnell is, is afraid of uh, that kind of uh, nutty zeal, uh, which, you know, clearly is off-putting to the kind of uh, independent voters and centrist voters and moderate voters who might vote for a, quote, normal Republican. Uh, you know, I mean, part of the problem is that on the one hand, you have some of the Trump candidates uh, have, you know, a, a long record in, in, in politics um, and, you know, have done some sane things in their careers, but a kind of alarmingly high percentage are lifelong wing nuts. Uh, I, I, you know, uh, I, I saw uh, the uh, election clerk in one Michigan county who uh, had actually thought about giving over uh, the voter files to uh, Trump's people and was, uh, you know, enjoined by a court that, you know, she couldn't do this, uh, has now uh, filed for secretary of state uh, in, oh, uh, in Michigan. Um, you know, I mean, uh, there are uh, loonies uh, who just will not win election. And this scares the hell out of Mitch McConnell, who's really only apparent ambition is to be majority leader of the Senate. And, and there's another um, far right candidate in the Arizona Senate race. Jim Lehman is his name. This guy ran an ad during the Super Bowl on Arizona stations that showed him shooting Mark Kelly in a high noon style Western gunfight. Of course, Mark Kelly's wife, Gabby Giffords, is the former member of Congress who was shot in the right. head while greeting constituents at, outside of a local grocery store. Uh, I don't think uh, Jim Lehman qualifies as a, quote, normal Republican. Well, the, the really scary thought is maybe he does. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, defining Republicans down uh, is the uh, basic uh, theme of what we've been facing, at least since the appearance of Newt Gingrich. Well, there um, is, let me just say, there is one normal Republican who is sort of the the candidate that Mitch McConnell and his faction would like. This is the Arizona governor, Greg Ducey, D-O-U-C-E-Y. He's the one who defied Trump's demands to declare Trump the winner of Arizona in 2020. And there's a poll of Arizona voters that finds he would win the Republican uh, primary because he's kind of a normal Republican. He's been elected governor. Everybody knows him. But he says he uh, Trump has been attacking him bitterly and trying to recruit other people to run against him. And as a result, he has said publicly and privately that he's not going to run. So Trump has driven out the most the better candidate, the one that has the most support, even among Republicans. Yes. And even uh, among a general electorate, he'd obviously do better than the other two. Uh, but, uh, you know, and it's worth pointing out that Ducey is a sitting governor who is term limited out of office at the end of this year. So it's not like he, you know, he prefer to stay governor. That's not the option. He would just prefer to get out of this mess. And uh, one can one can easily understand why. And then I also want to talk about Ohio, which, uh, you know, has turned become a red state uh, recently. Trump carried Ohio by eight points, but it does have one great Democratic senator. How did he get elected? Well, Sherrod Brown is, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the, the poster child for how Democrats can talk to working class voters and actually do things for working class voters. He was 
uh, you know, a, a, opposed to all of the free trade agreements that gutted a state like Ohio long before Trump even know this even knew this stuff was going on. Uh, he he's championing the Ohio working class, and Ohio, I should point out, uh, has uh, like the lowest percentage of college graduates of any state in the northeast quadrant of the United States. So it is a working class state. Uh, and Sherrod Brown knows how to uh, uh, not only talk to those people, but to, uh, you know, uh, do things that tan- tangibly benefit uh, those people. And he has survived uh, in Ohio, whereas no statewide Democrat other than other than he has survived. There is an open seat in Ohio and Sherrod Brown would like to have one of his people <clears throat> Uh, win this seat using his kind of dignity of work politics. And the Republicans do not have a strong candidate right now. They're, they're divided. Uh, Peter Thiel is also has a candidate who he's given $10 million to, and that's J.D. Vance, author of the best-selling memoir, uh, Hillbilly Elegy. Um, Vance um, is a passionate Trumper right now, but his opponents won't let the public forget that in 2016, he called Trump an idiot. Uh, he, this, of course, makes for great video among his opponents. And the leader, the leading candidate seems to be a guy named Josh Mandel, who was a big piece about him in the New York Times recently, former state treasurer who's become one of the nation's most strident crusaders for Trumpism. I'm quoting the New York Times. Uh, he uh, he he's rejected the separation of church and state. Claims the deep state uh, runs the pan is responsible for the pandemic. Uh, he uh, although he is the grandson of Holocaust survivors, uh, he has compared the federal uh, testing mandates to the actions of the Gestapo, and calls today's Afghan refugees alligators and. Of course, he denies that Biden won the election. Uh, is that the kind of candidate who can win in Ohio? He could be. Ohio is, uh, <laughs> is um, you know, t- turning into uh, more and more of a red state. But look, both he uh, and J.D. Vance, uh, you know, you could imagine more, uh, you know, Republican candidates like the state's governor, Mike DeWine, a Republican uh, with uh, more cross-cutting appeal. By the way, when you refer to uh, Mandel supporting uh, uh, getting rid of the separation of church and state, how that operationalizes in his uh, platform to the degree that it can be considered a platform is simply abolishing public schools and, and making all education you know, to, under the aegis of churches and synagogues. Uh, I, I wonder if he would extend that to mosques. But, Excellent uh, question. Uh, that's, you know. But the other thing about Mandel, uh, somewhat like Vance, uh, but even more so, is he entered politics as a very moderate Republican. Uh, but the one thing that comes through in the New York Times story is that this is a guy who was insatiably ambitious, no matter what his ideological, uh, ostensible ideological position was. And, uh, you know, people who knew him when uh, say that, oh, we we don't recognize this guy now, but the ambition is the through line there. And then after 2022, of course, there will be 2024 when Trump is 
eager to be the candidate. But on this program, David K. Johnston, who won the Pulitzer Prize for the New York Times, said uh, last month that he thought Trump would not be the candidate in 2024 because he'll be indicted for his financial crimes. And we got some fascinating evidence about that on Monday when we learned that Trump's longtime accounting firm abruptly cut ties with the Trump organization and instructed them to retract the official statements of financial condition that they had prepared from 2011 to 2020. This is nine years of lies about Trump's wealth. This uh, accounting company is called Mazars USA, and they are under fire in the middle of criminal and civil investigations into whether Trump illegally inflated the value of his assets. Uh, The Manhattan District Attorney and the New York State Attorney General are both investigating um, Trump. Um, How bad is it for Trump that his accountants have joined the DA's side in the financial fraud investigation? Well, the phrase of rats leaving a sinking ship certainly (laughs) springs to mind. But uh, I want to point out, it may sound initially counterintuitive, that he would try to inflate uh, his wealth and the value of his assets in terms of paying taxes. But the point was, it was on the basis of this that he got the various loans that have kept him afloat forever. Um, and and that's, the, uh, th- that's the, uh, the theory of the crime, so to speak, uh, here. Now, I think he, while he may be indicted on, on uh, this sort of thing, I think, you know, that, I don't think that would bring him down. I think if I'm Trump and I'm, you know, I have a hierarchy of things of possible and indictments to worry about, I would be more concerned about uh, the, the allegations in Atlanta that he uh, tried to get the uh, Atlanta Secretary of St- uh, the Georgia Secretary of State, a Republican, Mr. Raffensperger, to uh, create just enough votes for him to carry the state. I think, in terms of public understanding of what a crime is, I think of direct responsibility, since he was recorded saying that, as opposed to the complexity of you know, audits and things like that. I think he's much more in jeopardy than that, than he uh, is from his uh, financial statements in New York. Although, you know, that would certainly present an obstacle. uh, Absolutely. Well, Trump, um, just to give you a, a sense of Trump's state of mind, on Tuesday, he issued a reply to his former accountants. It was four pages long. It said, quote, we have a great company with fantastic assets that are far more valuable than what was listed in our financial statements, close quote. And he declared that his net worth was now more than $6 billion. He said his accountant's quitting was, quote, a crime against me that is a continuation of a witch hunt, the likes of which has never been seen in this country before, close quote, Donald Trump. Well, I think there were some women in early colonial uh, Salem, Massachusetts, who would take issue with that last statement. Uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, he refutes numbers with adjectives. That, 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 that's a kind of telling refutation. He didn't say how much 
his different assets are worth. He just said they're fantastic. Uh, I don't think that quite cuts it. Doesn't quite cut it. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always good to have you on the show. And always good to be here, John. the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The growing Republican divide over Donald Trump. For that, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for the nation, and his most recent book is Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers. We reached him today in Milwaukee. Hi, John. Hey, John, it's good to be with you. Well, how much is Trump screwing things up for Republicans in the midterms? There's various bits of evidence here, the most obvious sign of concern came after the Republican National Committee declared that the January 6th insurrection was, quote, legitimate political discourse. And then Mitch McConnell replied that they were wrong, that what Trump supporters did on January 6th was to attempt, quote, a violent insurrection. That's what Mitch said. That's what we say. And he's right about this, of course. But why would he do it? Well, it seems pretty clear he thinks Republicans are not going to win enough seats to retake the Senate if their candidates go along with Trump and his obsession with 2020 and his defense of the people who were chanting, hang Mike Pence on January 6th. So Mitch McConnell seems to think Trump is going to lose the Senate for the Republicans if he prevails in setting the Republican agenda. Do you think Mitch is right about that? Well, at the risk of entering into any conversation that includes the sentence, Mitch is right, <laughs> uh, I want to I want to start by qualifying a couple things here okay. and and simply say that uh, when you've got a Democratic president with an approval rating that that frequently falls down into the mid to low 40s, uh, spiking inflation, a lingering pandemic and a number of other challenges in a midterm election. If you're the Republicans, it's really hard to screw things up. Their <laughs> advantages are immense, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. let's, let's not underestimate that. And so if Mitch McConnell is concerned, I think you've got the answer to the question right there, right? That, that uh, as far as McConnell is concerned, what he would, he would like to do is simply put a name with Republican after it on the ballot and have nothing else in play mm. because in your typical midterm, that should be close to sufficient. Um, but there is no question that Donald Trump is making this dramatically more complicated and McConnell recognizes that, but, and so do some others, but they don't really know what to do about it. This is the complicated thing because Trump remains by far the most popular figure in the Republican Party, and Trump is going to define who wins the nominations for seats across the country, whether McConnell likes it or not. And Trump is also going to uh, define, I think, a lot of the energy on Republican turnout in the fall. So the what McConnell is trying to do is to keep the party as big a tent as is possible in this circumstance, but I don't think he's going to succeed. I think at the end of the day, 
the Republican Party is essentially going to be Trump's party this fall. And what McConnell, I think, is trying to do is is to communicate that if they win power, that it won't necessarily be fully Trump's party if they if indeed they win power. And so that's an interesting dynamic. I think it's going to be lost on most voters. And so at the end of the day, yes, Trump is screwing things up. He's going to continue to screw things up. And what McConnell does may temper that a little, but we have a situation with our media in, in this country that is just so excited about the prospect that somehow Trump is going to be pushed aside. And, and I just tell you, I cover politics for a living. I actually go out and talk to Republicans. And, and I don't see that happening. Well, one of the places that Trump is obsessed with and that we are very interested in is Georgia, uh, where, of course, Stacey Abrams is running for governor and where, you know, Stacey Abrams managed to get two Democrats elected to the Senate just a year ago. And one of them, Raphael Warnock, is up for re-election. Georgia just to remind listeners, is Trump's number one obsession because Republican Governor Brian Kemp refused to declare Trump the winner in Georgia in 2020. And so Trump is backing a primary challenger to Brian Kemp, former Senator David Perdue. And there's big news on that front. The Republican Governors Association is fighting Trump on this one. They've aired a TV commercial defending Brian Kemp against Trump's candidate, David Perdue. It's the first time in the group's history they financed ads for an incumbent in a primary. It's the first time Republican governors have challenged the leader of their party. Is this significant? Yeah, it's significant because, uh, you know, it is, it's, again, you're, you're starting to put the pieces together for at least some, you know, extreme right wing, but not Trump Republican Party, right? That they're, they're, positioning to be something different than Trump. And and remember that Brian Kemp is hardly somebody that you want to get excited about. This is a bad, very, very bad player. Yes. And so it's not like they're entering in on behalf of democracy and all things good and decent. They are, they are simply saying that they don't want one of their own to be knocked out. Now, they haven't had to do that very often. People are saying, well, this is one of the first times they've ever done this. Well, it's not that often that Republican governors get challenged in primaries. And so uh, it's somewhat of a unique situation. It is significant. And Georgia really is a, a fascinating situation in general. A lot of people are going to be looking at the Wyoming uh, race with Liz Cheney as a test, the Alaska race with Lisa Murkowski as a test of how, you know, somewhat of a dissident Republican survives you know, in, in this Trump era. Um, really, George is the biggest test because Trump is active up and down the ballot. He's endorsing candidate for secretary of state against the incumbent there. He's got lots of other candidates. He's got, He's got a, a Senate, Senate He has a Senate yeah, candidate. Who's sort of falling apart. Um, and so I do think that Georgia is, that those Georgia primaries are going to be very, very telling. And if Trump's candidates lose in Georgia, that's the big deal. It's not the big deal that the Republican governors got in, Right. It's it's what the results of that those Georgia primaries are. And that that could be the biggest setback to Donald Trump, aside perhaps from Liz Cheney winning her primary within the party during this this primary season. So, yeah, I do think what's going on there is important. But I would be, again, cautioning. Uh, don't assume because the Republican governors jumped in that that's necessarily definitional 
Because I will tell you right now, if you went down any street in Georgia and asked, you know, are you, do you get excited about the Republican governors? Or do you get excited about Donald Trump? Or Donald Trump? Oh, yeah. the, the likelihood is it isn't going to be the Republican governors. <laughs> Excellent point. Well, you, you've reminded us that Trump remains the most popular and powerful figure in the Republican Party. He's able to fill fairgrounds with these huge crowds, bigger than any other political figure in America today, it seems like. But there are these polls, and I just want to look at the polls for a minute about Republicans. The polls have been asking for a while now whether uh, whether Trump supporters consider themselves Republican first or Trump supporters first, and it's been shifting away from Trump. Uh, the AP's latest poll shows that 44% of Republicans said they did not want Trump to run again. And on the, well, are you more of a Republican or more, more of a Trump supporter? Trump had by 54% said they were mostly Trump voters in October, and the same poll found that had fallen to 36% in the most recent, this is the NBC poll. So in this erosion was spread across every demographic. They say men and women, moderates and conservatives, old and young. The biggest swing was in Trump's white working class base, which went from 62% saying they were basically Trump supporters to 36% say they're basically Trump supporters. Why do you think this is happening? Yeah, it's a very good it's a very good question. I think there's a couple answers to it. Number one, um, it, I think we got to be cautious here and say, if you're a Republican strategist and you've still got 36, 38 percent of Republicans saying they're Trump supporters. Oh, yeah. Right. And they're not in support. There's nobody else. that's above them. Right. Above that. Um, you still got a problem. there. You got to yeah. you, you still have to deal with Trump um, that I think more and more Republicans are saying they are not Trump supporters. First and foremost is a result of two things. And it's a fascinating and, and kind of perhaps I hate to say unsettling reality. Some of them. Uh, really just our core Republicans, they always were going to be in there. You know, they feel free to, to, to say that at this point. But another portion of them are actually, I think, moving to the right of Trump, to a more extreme place than Trump is at. Because we have seen the rise. If you follow right-wing media, and especially uh, if you're on the Internet, uh, Trump is, you know, he's off Twitter. He's off a lot of other places. But Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Matt Gates and uh, Gosar and other people, they're still there. And there is clearly a, there's an energy uh, on the very, very far right, even to the right of Trump within the Republican Party. I can just tell you a quick example from my state of Wisconsin. Uh, the Republican Party of Wisconsin is 100% pro-Trump. They're, they're all on board. There's no question of that. And yet the Speaker of the State Assembly recently withdrew staff from a member of the assembly because that member was so over the top in saying the election was stolen and just, you know, deep down the rabbit hole on every conspiracy, vaccines, everything. This was somebody who was way beyond where even like maybe a Marjorie Taylor Greene is, right? Well, the guy turned around, announced for governor and had a rally where he packed a high school gymnasium and had, uh, you know, the mat, the pillow guy, Lindell come in mm -hmm. and had, you know, uh, you know, uh, other kind of way fringe Trump people calling in to support him, cheering crowd, you know, and stuff like that. So I do want to emphasize that now the Republican Party, and, and you see this when, when parties go to extremes, that they end up developing sort of a hard line that is even a little more out there, but sees the party as their own. So 
I guess what I would say at core as regards that poll is I think it's significant. I think that some of the people who are just core Republicans are becoming more comfortable saying, I'm a Republican, not a Trump person. That's That has some meaning, but it's not defining the Republican Party as you know even a center-right party. It remains either the Trump party or in many cases, something more extreme than Trump. So I think politically, that's what they're going to run on this fall. And uh, what somebody like McConnell wants them to be is simply hating on Biden. That's that. No, I'm telling you, that's that McConnell, McCarthy, these people, they just want a party that hates Biden. And they think that in a midterm, that's going to be sufficient. Um, They would love to put Trump to the side. I think there's a number of old school Republicans who would love to put Trump to the side. And yet, at the end of the day, Republicans are going to need that combination of hating on Biden and Trump, you know, infused, even more right wing infused energy for turnout. So they're still walking a very tight road. They're walking a tight rope here. And that takes us to the question of the COVID politics in the Republican Party and in the Republican primaries. Your book is about coronavirus criminals. That's becoming a bit of an issue among Republicans. We noticed this when Trump was booed in Dallas when he said he had not only received the vaccine, but a booster shot. He told the audience that he took credit for the rapid invention and production of the vaccine, Operation Warp Speed. And as Republicans, they should be proud of that. And he was booed. And since the end of January... He has not mentioned vaccines in his rallies. He's sort of been scared away from what is his one legitimate accomplishment, the development of of the vaccine. So it seems like the anti-vax movement is emerging as a powerful force inside the Republican Party. It's certainly being encouraged by some of the most prominent figures in conservative media. And they are a minority in the party, It's the polls tell us, but... They are forcing Republican candidates to confront the question of whether it's enough to be just against the mandates or whether you also have to be against the vaccines themselves. The Republicans who are anti-vaxxers or who give a lot of airtime to anti-vaxxers include Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, Steve Bannon, Sarah Palin, Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's bragged about not getting vaccinated. So you're the author of Coronavirus Criminals. This is kind of a new chapter in the politics of the coronavirus criminals where Trump is not right-wing enough in his opposition to vaccines. Is that going to affect the party in the midterms in the swing states? It certainly affects the politics of 2022. There is simply no question. I have argued for a long time that COVID is the biggest issue in 2022. Now, it's getting competition from inflation. And that inflation relates to the pandemic, obviously, or at least in some ways. Um, uh, but COVID is an issue that that neither party has fully uh, figured out how to how to deal with. The Democrats it, it gave them a tremendous advantage in 2020. I, I think it was a key factor in Joe Biden winning. I think it was a key factor in taking the Senate. And so, COVID politics is very very uh, energetic. It has power. It's also volatile, and it's hard to to manage because it speaks to a lot of people's fears, concerns, all sorts of other things. Now, um, as regards Trump and, and vaccines and things like that, the one thing to understand about Donald Trump is his talent is not to lead. 
His talent is to see a parade and run really fast to get in front of it, right? That's that's what he is. He is not a deep thinker about political ideology or anything like that. As soon as he saw that there was a real base in the Republican Party that, that wasn't enthusiastic about vaccines, as you say, he backed off. Now, this is where it gets complicated because the anti-vaxxers uh, and the vaccine skeptics, they are hyper-energetic. They... They are, they are enthusiastic. They get their messaging out. And when I wrote my book, one of the things I, I wrote, a, there's a chapter on Trump, to be sure, and he deserves it. But I've also got big chapters on Rand Paul and on Ron Johnson and on a number of these other folks. And, and Rand Paul and Ron Johnson, you know, Rand Paul kind of makes his political living now attacking Dr. Fauci. And Ron Johnson is a flat out vaccine skeptic. He, he amplifies and highlights it. And two things that are interesting, that has not hurt him with the Republican base. I mean, even Republican leadership, they, they're pretty enthusiastic about Ron Johnson. They're going to back him. Trump is backing him, et cetera. But it also gives him this very enthusiastic, uh, you know, kind of hyper militant group that is on his side. That is something, frankly, the Republican Party is playing with fire there. It's, it's an incredibly volatile reality within it. And I don't have any doubt that we will see some primaries this year where anti-vaxxers beat more mainstream Republicans uh, on that issue and on a, a kind of a rubric of that and related issues. And the way that I would reference it is look at the reaction of uh, Republicans in the U.S. to the uh, Canadian truckers. I mean, that became a very big deal. If you listen to right wing talk radio now, that's all they're talking about. They can't. Ukraine doesn't doesn't make it out of the conversation. Right. They're, you know, they're deep into the, the Canadian truckers. Well, you know, the Canadian truck protests were this combination of, you know, anti-mandates, there are a whole host of, of gripes. And I think that's how it will play in the U.S. But um, within that will be a vaccine skepticism or even anti-vax position that I think is going to be very volatile within the Republican Party. And frankly, that's going to have a big impact in November, because if you look at the polling, Americans like vaccines. They do. And they and Americans are much more comfortable with mandates uh, as regards vaccines and public health than a lot of our media communicates. And so if the Republicans end up nominating anti-vax candidates, which is I think will happen in some places, uh, what's going to happen is you're going to see something like what occurred in 2010 when uh, you had a big wave for the Republicans, but they lost a lot of races. They probably could have won because especially some Senate races like Harry Reid's seat out in Nevada because they nominated candidates who were so extreme mm -hmm. that, that they couldn't pull it off. And this may actually be one of the biggest factors in November is COVID politics and particularly the, the vaccine politics. One last thing. It's the KPFK Fund Drive, and we are featuring your book, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, as our thank you gift for this show. We thank you for making the book available to us at KPFK. And I know you've always been a huge supporter of alternative media, listener-supported radio, especially at Pacifica. So let's talk about that for a minute. Why you think KPFK and stations like it are a good thing that deserve support from listeners? Yeah, I don't think they're a good thing that deserves support, John. I think they're a great thing that deserves massive levels of, of encouragement. And the reason for that is not merely because I like a lot of the people who are involved and I, and I like the, the, the model in many, many ways. It goes deeper. Uh, 20 years ago, Bob McChesney and I started writing about the decline of media in the United States. And what we recognized is even then, we didn't have enough sources of 
speak truth to power, uh, progressive, smart journalism, right? And discussion and dialogue. They're just many parts of the country just don't have it. Well, what's happened over the last 20 years is that we've lost a lot of what we have. Our newspapers are dying. Uh, in, in broadcast, we've seen so much, uh, homogenation and, uh, there's a lot on the internet, but it's hard to get to. And so having a strong, you know, community-based independent radio station that speaks truth to power at the local, state, national, and international level that brings on guests who will offer alternative perspectives. And frankly, that tries to get to some approximation of the truth as hard as that may be in these times. That's more valuable than it has ever been. And so I'm honored to have my book be a premium in, in a moment like this. But more than that, whether people get my book or not, uh, I will just say that they've got to give everything they can. I know people make campaign contributions. I know people you know, give money to a lot of different sources. And I respect that. I want you to continue to do that for what you believe in. But I will tell you, if you don't support this station, and if you don't support it now, you undermine all the other things you believe in because having an island of truth and sort of an aggressive search for you know, what, we, what we need to know, what we can know, uh, is so valuable today that without it, all the other projects that we're involved in, fighting for democracy, for economic and social and racial justice, to save the planet, to promote peace, all those other things are undermined if we lose this radio station. So give at, at the highest level you can. That's what I, I plead for. Uh, I hope you get my book. I think it will uh, makes a fine holiday gift. Uh, but at the bottom line, the most important thing is to support this station and independent media because we need it now more than ever. And you can do that by calling 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK right now. John Nichols, his terrific new book is Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. John, thanks for the book. Thanks for making it available as a fun drive a, a premium for us. And thanks for talking with us today. John, thanks for everything you do. Great, great host, great station. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.